let's do that. Let's do that. Let's take our Bibles together and turn to the book of Job. I was just telling Becky, uh, if you haven't been here in a while, we haven't gotten very far. We've been reviewing and doing other things. And uh, so we're going to plow ahead this day as we look at uh, this section involving Elihu. While you're turning there, let, let's just do a little a little review, if uh, if that's okay with you. It's been a little while. Uh, let, let's, uh, let's very quickly take the airplane to 40,000 feet and remind ourselves of the big picture of Job, okay? Let's do that and we'll get our bearing and then we'll descend back down into the chapters where Elihu is speaking. Um, remember, there are three themes in the book of Job. What this book is about is three particular themes or doctrines. And um, the first one that we saw, it's really introduced to us in that first couple of chapters, those first couple of chapters there, is the issue of worship. Uh, it's interesting because the three themes of Job revolve around the three main characters in the book. And that's kind of a helpful way to think about it. Uh, the, the first theme is the theme of worship, and that really revolves, revolves around the character of Satan, who's introduced to us in chapter 1 and chapter 2. And uh, the reason worship is introduced is because Satan has... <laughs> Shocking, a wrong view of worship. And, and he is introducing the reader to that wrong view of worship. And part of what the book of Job does is present that wrong view of worship and then correct it. God thwarts Satan's view of worship in the first couple chapters of the book by showing Satan that Job is not worshiping God simply because God has made his life so good. Job is worshiping God because he is worthy of worship, and Job continues to trust him and love him and serve him, even though his world has been turned upside down in that. So the character there is the character of Satan, and that's the first theme that we saw there. The second theme in the book is the theme of suffering, and it revolves around the three friends, um, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And uh, they come just like Satan. Satan has a wrong view of worship. The friends come with a wrong understanding of suffering. The friends have what we call a retributive view. And I've used that word a bunch of times. Let me just remind you what it means. Retributive theology says this. When I do what's right, God blesses me. When I do something wrong, God punishes me. And and it's this sort of one-to-one relationship where what I do determines what God does And that's the theological paradigm through which the three characters look at life. So, for example, Job loses his kids, he loses his livelihood, he loses his animals, he loses some of his servants. And in that theology, what must have been going on in Job's life? Yeah, he must have been sinning in some way, right? Because God is obviously punishing him. They interpret the suffering of his life as God's punishment, and that leads them back to the conclusion that there must be some hidden sin life that Job isn't telling everybody about. That's retributive theology. So that topic revolves around the three friends, and that is the second theme of the book. The third theme of the book, which we see introduced in the dialogue section, is the issue of justice, the issue specifically of God's justice. Is God a righteous and just God? That's really the question. 
Because in the midst of his suffering, Job begins to slide away from a trust in God and a dependence on him and a, a, uh, a faith in him. He begins to slide in the chronic nature of his suffering to saying, I'm not sure God is doing this right. And that questioning of God, that questioning of what God is doing, slides even further down the road to an accusing God of wrongdoing. And we've seen this, haven't we? We've seen Job accusing God. He said, he said things like this, uh, God, I want to take you to court so that I can try you. Whoa. Job wants to take God to court because he's convinced that God is in the wrong and he is in the right. And, and, and the sad thing is, as he has slid from trust in God to accusing God, he has also parallel in the sense of trusting in God to trusting in himself. Remember, he says, I am innocent. I am innocent. It is his righteousness that he's trusting in, not the Lord. That, that's very interesting because, well, let, let's, let's take a little theological footnote here for a minute. When we slide to the place where we are unhappy with what God is doing, we are not thrilled with the way he's running his universe. And maybe it goes a step further. Maybe we're starting to get angry with God. Maybe we are starting to accuse God and wonder if he really knows what is best. Always, always, always that comes with pride and self-righteousness. Okay, so, so maybe you can think of it like this. When I'm accusing God, when I am angry at God, there is pride in my heart, and that shows me that I'm depending on myself and I'm not depending on Him. Because those two always go together. If I'm going to stand in judgment of God, what is that? That's pride. And that goes right back to Genesis 3 when, when Satan said to Adam and Eve, you know, you, you can stand in judgment of God. You know, you can, you can decide whether you like the rule that God gave you or not. Or you can decide whether that's not so good and you want to go a different way. That's the heart of pride. The heart of pride is standing in judgment of the creator of the universe. Where the creature puts his finger in the nose of the creator and says, I think I know better on this one. That's pride. It doesn't get any more prideful than that. And pride and self-righteousness always go together. You can't be trusting God and be prideful in that way. Do you see that? you see how those two things go together? We see that in Job's life. So, so the third theme here is the issue of justice, and it revolves, as I said, around the character of Job himself because he's going to get to the place where he's going to accuse God of being unjust in that. Okay, now, what do these three themes have in common? Do you remember? What do they have in common? Oh, it hasn't been that long, has it? All three of these themes present a wrong view of who? Do you see that? All three of those themes in some way attack the character of God himself. So you ready for this? Job is a book about the character of God, ultimately. You say, I thought it was a book about suffering. Suffering is the means by which the book presents who God really is. Suffering is just the tool. Job is just the instrument. 
This book is about the character of God. Now, there's Job, and, and I drew the themes in terms of the uh, overlapping like that because Job lives quite literally in the midst of all three of those themes, doesn't he? He's the living, breathing person going through all three of those themes being presented. But all of them are about the character of God. Okay. Um, and that's why we've, sp- we, we've, we've spent so much time looking at what the characters believe and think about who God is. Because that's really the issue that the book is trying to address. Now, I've got news for you. I know some of you have been reading ahead. I have spies. I know this. And um, you know that when we get to the end of Job, God doesn't say, y'all have asked some really good questions, and now I'm going to answer them. We get to the end of the book, and God basically says, you know what? I'm God. You're not, and you need to be okay with that. And, and that, that's the, 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 the sobering reality of where this goes when we start creating God in our own image. And God says, you need to, you need to submit to who I am and trust me with what I do. Okay, does that make sense? That's kind of where we've been. That's, that's the book of Job in a nutshell there. Uh, so let's now uh, parachute down into chapter 32 as we uh, rapidly descend. Because uh, chapter 32 starts uh, the last section of the book. We, we finished the dialogue section where Job talks to his three friends and they go around the, the dialogue three different times. Everybody's at an impasse. At the end of 31, nobody has anything else to say. The friends are unconvinced. Job is unconvinced of the the friends' accusations. And then this young man, a guy named Elihu, steps up, and um, he's angry. In fact, the text tells us four times he's angry. And um, he's waited to speak because he's a younger man and he's being respectful to his elders. And and so he jumps in on the scene and... And um, and he begins to talk. Now, last time that we talked about Elihu, we saw that um, he's emphasizing Job's need for a mediator. And, and we get what we might call the gospel in miniature in Job chapter 33. Do you remember that? We get themes like this. Elihu says, you know what, Job, you need somebody to deliver you from death. You need somebody to provide a ransom, literally to atone by offering a substitute. Um, he needs to be turned back to the Lord. He needs a restoration of righteousness and joy. He needs someone to bring about repentance and help him to see the light. And we went through there, and as we walk through that chapter, we see all these theological nuggets lying all over the floor. And, and I don't think for a minute Elihu understood the gospel like the New Testament presents it. But he throws out all of these gospel pieces. And looking at them with New Testament eyes, we can look at those gospel pieces and say, hey, I can put these together and it looks kind of like the gospel. And so we see a lot of those, um, I, I call it the setting of the table. It, it's The Old Testament sets the table for the gospel that is served in the New Testament. All those themes about substitution, redemption, and atonement, and a, a ransom, and, and, and a need to repent, and all those types of things, all that's preparation for when John the Baptist looks down and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There he is. 
And all those pieces have set the table so that when Jesus shows up, everybody says, oh yeah, I get it now. Here's the Savior. Here, here's the atoning sacrifice. Here's our substitute that we need to be reconciled to our God. So we won't, we won't review all of this uh, right now with Elihu. Um, you can uh, download the audio if you missed that. But let me show you where we're at right here. We're in chapter uh, 34. So let's look at chapter 34 here. And uh, let's just jump back in in chapter 34, verse 1. It says, Then Elihu continued following his, what I call the gospel according to Elihu there in, in the end of 33. Uh, he says, verse 2, Hear my words, you wise men, and listen to me, you who know. For the ear tests words as the palate tastes food. Let us choose for ourselves what is right. Let us know among ourselves what is good. For Job has said, I am righteous, but God has taken away my right. Again, Elihu is reminding us that Job is accusing God. He says, my wound is incurable, though I am without transgression. He says, God is wounding me and he's not healing me even though I'm innocent, even though I'm without transgression. What man is like Job who drinks up derision like water, who goes in company with the workers of iniquity and walks with wicked men? For he has said it profits a man nothing when he is pleased with God. That, that shows you right there how far Job has gone. Job has gotten to the place where he says, if this is the way God really is, what's the point of even believing in him? You know any people like that? You know any people that have had such a tragic life or maybe a, a terrible circumstance? They get to the point and say, well, if this is what that God is like, I'm not sure following him is worth it. Do you see that? Now, just thinking back in chapters past, how did Job get here? How did he get to that place? Because remember, chapter 1, this was one of the most righteous men that ever existed. How did he get there? Okay, the pain and suffering combined with his friends doing what? Giving him bad advice. You know, it's interesting to, to watch. You guys know I'm very visual. That's why the whiteboard's there. And when I read Job, I, it's almost like, um, have you ever witnessed a car accident? Maybe a couple cars in front of you and see that. When I read Job... It's almost like I'm sitting in the car behind, you know, a few cars back, and I see a collision coming. A collision between the chronic nature and the enduring state of his suffering that just is relentless. It's just going. And the, the advice of the friends that continues to push him away from God instead of toward God. And, and you see it coming to a head going, what's gonna happen when they hit? And we see that here. Uh, thankfully, Job never ultimately abandons his his uh, faith in God. But we see here he's at least questioning it. What's the point? What's what's the point if this is the way it is? And, and you know, uh, just a footnote on that. When you're ministering to people in suffering, pay attention to those types of questions. Because it's very, very easy to get there. And it's very easy to stand there saying, well, what's your problem? You know, what's the deal? 
But, but especially that chronic type of suffering can lead a person to where they're questioning, should I even believe at all? Where were we? Um, verse 10. Therefore, listen to me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God to do wickedness and from the Almighty to do wrong. Stop right there. Paul said it in Romans. Let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. What's he saying? What's he saying? That's, that's, that's Paul's version of this verse. But what is Elihu saying? What is Paul saying by statements like that? This is the part where you guys talk. Okay, God is God, we're not. Okay, he can't do anything wrong. To what degree can God not do anything wrong? What's that? The infinite degree. Paul says, and I know I didn't show it to you in Romans, but Paul says, even if we got everybody in the world together, okay, we could do that. We could have a worldwide court, and every single person in the world took the witness stand and said, God is wrong. Next person, God is wrong. Next person, God is wrong. Paul says, if that happened for everybody in the world coming in and accusing God, then all of them would be pronounced liars before God would be pronounced guilty. That's what God is saying through the Apostle Paul in Romans. And Elihu's right on that, isn't he? He says, far be it from God to do wickedness. He's God. One of the things that makes him God is he is holy. What does that word mean? Holy? He's set apart from what? From wickedness. From sin. He dwells in inapproachable light. Light without any mingling of darkness at all, John says. He says, far be it from the Almighty to do wrong. He can't do wrong. He's God. And we say, yeah, Elihu, you tell him, man. Then you get to verse 11. For he pays a man according to his work and makes him find it according to his way. And we say, what? What does that sound like? I know the notes are up there, but what does it sound like? There's that retributive theology. So we say, hmm, do we like this guy or not? Verse 12, surely God will not act wickedly. Yes, that's right. You tell him, Elihu. And the Almighty will not pervert justice. But he says he pays a man according to his work. So we see here Elihu's twofold counsel, if we can call it that. He consistently defends God against any injustice. Look down at verse uh, 17. He says, Shall one who hates justice rule? And will you condemn a righteous mighty one? He's saying God's not like that. Uh, Look down at uh, chapter 37. Just flip the page over to chapter 37, uh, verse 23. Actually, let's start in verse 22. Behold, God is exalted in his power. Who's a teacher like him? He has no teacher, does he? 
Verse 23, who has appointed him his way? Who has said, you have done wrong? Okay, talking about Job. And, and, and what Elihu's saying there is, Elihu is defending God against Job's accusations. God doesn't do that. God doesn't do wickedness. He doesn't do wrong. So, so we see Elihu consistently defending God against any injustice. That's something that no one else in the book has done yet. Okay? That's why I, I told you that Elihu is the John the Baptist of the Old Testament here. Because he is preparing the way for God to step on the scene. Now, interestingly enough, when God finally speaks at the end of the book... Does he make the issue the retributive theology of the people, of the friends? Is that what he goes after? What, what problem that we've seen so far is the issue for God? What is it? Well, it is Job's faithfulness, but, but what, what is... God has one thing that he's going to correct when he speaks. One thing. What is that one thing that he's going to correct? That's it. He's going to go after Job's delusion that he knows better than God, that he can stand in judgment of his creator. Okay. So Elihu, you ready? Gets it right. Because Elihu sees that. And Elihu says, that's crazy. You're accusing God of wrongdoing? You think you know better than the Creator? Hello? That's a big deal. God doesn't do that. But at the same time that, that, that we've got the Elihu banners saying, Go Elihu, we like this guy, he, he's getting it. Look what he falls into. Back in chapter 34, verse 11, he says, For he pays a man according to his work, and he makes him find it according to his way. There's that retributive theology. We see it again in chapter 36. Flip over there. Pick it up in verse 5 of chapter 36. Behold, God is mighty, but does not despise any. He is mighty in strength of understanding. Now watch this. Hear the, hear the retributive theology of Elihu here. He does not keep the wicked alive. And gives justice to the afflicted. That sounds, that sounds just like the three friends, doesn't it? The wicked don't prosper, Job. Come on. Verse 7. He does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous, but with kings on the throne he has seated them forever, and they are exalted. And if they are bound in fetters or are caught in the cores of affliction, then he declares them their work and their transgressions that they have magnified themselves. He says, you see some guys there that are being afflicted or they're caught up in fetters? What's the issue? They're being caught up in their wickedness. They're, they're, they're paying, in a sense, for their transgressions. Um. Verse 11, look at this. It goes the other way. But if they hear and serve him... Okay, if, if they do what's right, verse 11, then they shall end their days in prosperity and their years in pleasures. See, if you do what's right, God blesses you. You do what's wrong, God punishes you. There's that theology again. There's a lot of, just being real honest with you guys, there's a lot of disagreement in commentaries over Elihu. In fact, commentators fight over Elihu probably more than anybody else in the book. Um. I, maybe I'm kind of just simple-minded in, in this thing, but I just kind of read it, and uh, and based on what we know the book is about and what we know is true of God, 
we evaluate this man. Is his counsel good or bad? And I say, it's mixed. He's the only guy in the book, other than God, to get up and say, Job, you can't do that. You can't accuse God. That, that's a wrong thing to do. But he also sides with the three friends in terms of saying, Job, obviously there's some sin in your life, or you wouldn't be suffering. So he's a mixed bag. And again, I've said this before, this is a very honest book, isn't it? There's no superheroes in this book. There, there's no red capes and blue suits and people that jump over buildings in a single bound. These are real people. And just like you and me, sometimes they get it right, sometimes they get it wrong. That, that's who we are. Bill. Just stepping back a little bit. Right, right. I think, uh, I think Curtis, I think we were talking about that a few months ago. Curtis and I were talking about uh, several months ago about, you know, how do we know what Job knew and what books, you know, did he have any of the Old Testament available to him? And, and the answer is, yeah, we really don't know. Um, you know, we can guess, but um, uh, it, it, this was a common theology of the culture of the day. And I, I suppose in a probably almost exclusively oral society. Maybe the, all they had was what they had been passed down to them. Um, but you know, the other thing is that God is, God is gracious and compassionate in his treatment of these guys. But he doesn't give them a pass at the end of the book because they didn't have the completed canon of Scripture. So even though that's true and even though we guess... Um, God is holding them accountable for something here. And, and you'd think that, well, he's not going to hold them accountable if they didn't have some idea of what was going on. But I don't know. Yes? Yes. Pretty much. Yeah, that's it. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I, I know this has been the $100 question that all of you have wanted to ask. Um, if retributive theology is wrong, what do we do with you know, Galatians? Uh, you reap what you sow. What do you do with Proverbs, which is largely about when you do this, this happens, and when you do that, that happens. What, what do you do with those, with those books? Stay tuned. Stay tuned. There's a message coming to a theater near you. Um, <laughs> Where, where we will... No, I'm serious. I, it's, it's, right, it's right here, and I've got some, some preparation, but when we get through Elihu, we're going to go there. Okay, and we'll try to unpack how we understand that in Scripture. Yes, sir? Uh, for me, the more I get into Job, the more there's a, there's a crying out for that mediator. Yeah. There's, there's, there's this big void here. Yeah. That, uh, here's man down here trying to do all this. Little, here's God yeah. way up here, and we need something. Yeah. Yes, that's a great point. There is. Yeah, and that's the irony of, I haven't thought about the placement of it in the book, but that's the irony of what Elihu says um, back in chapter 33, where, where he basically gives the pieces of the gospel. They're laying there on the ground. 
They don't know it's the gospel. But there's substitution, there's atonement, there's ransom, there's redemption, there's a mediator, and you're going, ha, this looks familiar. But they can't see it yet. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, well and, and let me throw another curveball at you in thinking about this. That is, that is largely the way the Old Covenant goes to the Israelites. You know, you know when, you, when you follow me and obey, I will bless you as a nation. When you turn away from me, I will curse you. And, and, and so then as New Testament Christians, looking at those verses that apply to the Old Covenant to the Israelites, we kind of go, well, what do we do with that? So it, it's a little more complicated, but I appreciate you pointing that out because that's really true. David. Yes. Right. Yes. Yeah. You know, I'll, I'll give you a preview of, of this message that's coming. I, I think retributive theology, as we think about that, it's it's kind of like an onion. Sorry. Um, it, there are layers of biblical truth, and you have to understand all of those layers to make sense of it. If you take one layer off, you don't have the whole thing. It is true that there are passages in Scripture that say, you know, you do reap what you sow, and ultimately if you reject the gospel, you are going to be punished for that. Um, but there's also, and I'm, I'm showing my cards a little bit, but there's this wonderful layer called grace where God gives us what we don't deserve and where he withholds what we rightly deserve in punishment and judgment. There's a wonderful layer called patience, Romans 2, where he, he holds back the punishment that we deserve, giving men and women time to repent and to come to Christ. So, so if you don't get all those layers there, and you take one of them and run, then you end up with a false view of how God really works. It's interesting. Um, this is a book full of grace. It's full of grace. We haven't, we haven't pointed that out in particular for a very long time. This is a very, very, very gracious book. And it's a little bit like Jonah in this regard. The characters are accusing God, just like Jonah was, when the whole book is about how God has been gracious to them. But they can't see it. So, anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll get there. Yeah, he does. He sure does. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and you see, you know, Jonah, Jonah gets in God's kitchen two or three times, you know, and, oh, if this is the way it is, then just kill me, because I don't like, you know, you're like, what? You know, he's acting like a junior higher or something. And, um, and yet you see all throughout that book, God's grace, God's grace, God's grace. And in the end, he doesn't want God to be gracious to the Ninevites because he can't see his own need for grace. And that's, that's the point of the book. It's when we realize our need for grace and how gracious God has been to us that we will then in turn want grace even for our enemies. There. Anyway, that's Jonah. But, um, but, but Job is a lot like that in that the characters are given all of this grace, but they don't see it yet. Okay? Uh, so, so more news at 10 there. But uh, where, where were we? Where were we? Yes. Um, wow. 
the, the short answer is because God is a gracious God. And, and his, his particular grace in redemption looks forward to Christ and in a sense requires that. But that does not inhibit God from being gracious to his people until Christ comes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's an unfolding of that plan in Scripture, but um, you know that, that's a, that's a caricature of the Old Testament. We can just as long as it's on the table, we'll talk about it. Um, that that God in the Old Testament is is law and judgment, and He's angry. And we get to the New Testament, we turn the page. There's Jesus. He's Mister Rogers. You know, he's just a nice guy in a sweater, and he wants to be nice to everybody. And the Old Testament is full of grace. I mean, you know, read, read about the Israelites. How many times did they disobey? God forgives them. They disobey again. God forgives them. God, you know, the whole thing in Moses and, and, and the Exodus where God says, I'm not going to go with you. And Moses appeals to him and he says, okay, I will go with you. And that's all grace. So, so that, that's, that's all God's grace preparing us for and looking forward to the cross of Christ, which is the ultimate display there. Um, but God is God and, and, he, and the scripture says he doesn't change, right? Which means if he's a God of grace in the New Testament, then he's a God of grace in the Old Testament. Okay. Any more tough theological questions you guys want to throw at me right now? I noticed Terry abandoned me, so I couldn't call on him there, but our resident theologian. But um. Okay. So, so we see, uh, going back to chapter 36, we, we see sort of this, this dual... Uh, counsel in Elihu. We get some good stuff because he's defending God against any injustice. By the way, I think that's, I think that is in part why God doesn't rebuke Elihu at the end of the book. Because Elihu gets the most important part. But he falls right into the retributive theology of the friends. And, uh, and that's, and that's the downside there. Um, let's pick it up in verse 12 and we'll just kind of wander through here. Uh, verse 12 of chapter 36, but if they do not hear, they shall perish by the sword. That, that talking about the people that do wrong. They shall die without knowledge. But the godless in heart lay up anger. They do not cry for help when he binds them. They die in youth and their life perishes among the cult prostitutes, people that are involved in, in gross sin there. He delivers the afflicted in their affliction. See, he, he takes care of people that are suffering and he opens their ear in a time of impression. Uh, then indeed, he enticed you from the mouth of distress, instead of it, a broad place with no constraint. And that which was set on your table was full of fatness. Okay, so God blesses you, Job, right? Verse 17, but you were full of judgment on the wicked. Judgment and justice take hold of you. Beware, lest wrath entice you to scoffing. And do not let the greatness of the ransom turn you aside. Will your rich, this is interesting. Because, you know, he's saying, Job, you had all this stuff and then you lost it all because you were full of judgment on the wicked. Listen to this, verse 19. Will your riches keep you from distress or all the forces of your strength? Remember I told you that Job is a book of really good questions? Remember that from months ago? Isn't that a great question? Does the richest man in the world, does that keep him from suffering? Maybe from some forms. He may not starve to death. But can money save you from trial and suffering? 
No, it can't. Isn't that a great question? And Elihu is saying, that can't be your Savior. Verse 20, do not long for the night when people vanish in their place. Be careful. Do not turn to evil. For you have preferred this to affliction. But behold, God is exalted in his power. Who is a teacher like him? Who has appointed him his way? And who has said, you have done wrong? We, we talked about that verse already. Remember that you should exalt his work, of which men have sung. All men have seen it, for man beholds from afar. Behold, God is exalted, and we do not know him. And the number of his years is unsearchable. Theologians call that the infinitude of God. His ways are unsearchable. The number of his years, that would be his eternality, is unsearchable. There's some really good theology in these chapters, really good uh, teaching about who God is. Um, now, what's going to happen in this last chapter leading up to chapter 38 Chapter 38 is when God steps in on the scene. And Elihu is going to transition here. And we'll just jump into this. We'll probably need to finish this next time. But um, Elihu is going to transition to basically unpacking what he says in verse 26. Let me show you just how exalted God is and how far away he is from us in terms of his knowledge. How much we are not like him. And Elihu is going to really, really sound like God in the next couple of chapters here. Look at what he says. Verse 27, For he draws up the, the, the drops of water. They distill rain from the midst which the clouds pour down. They drip upon man abundantly. Can anyone understand the spreading of the clouds? By the way, do you understand that? We have Doppler radar, chief meteorologist, channel 4, right? And we don't get the weather right most of the time. You know, I, I'm a, I am a weatheraholic. I mean, I've got, I've got the digital rain gauge. I've got the predictor thing. It's the th first thing that comes up on my iPhone. I've got the radar. I've got the weather alerts that yell at me. And Lisa just says, I'm just going to look out the window and see what it's like today. So, and she's usually right. Can we understand that? Behold, he spreads his lightning about him. Verse 30. He covers the depths of the sea. For by these He judges peoples. He gives food in abundance. He covers His hands with the lightning and commands it to strike the mark. You can't predict where that's going to hit. You can't predict where it's going to go. It's because God marks it and says, there, boom, and it hits. Its noise declares His presence. The cattle also concerning what is coming up? At this also my heart trembles, Elihu says, and it leaps from its place. Well, what's that? Listen closely to the thunder of his voice and the rumbling that goes out from his mouth. Under the, and by the way, footnote, he's not saying God is, is you know, speaking some message. He's saying when you see the thunderstorm, it's Psalm 19. That's the declaration that God is the creator and sustainer of the universe. Colossians 1, he, subs he, he sustains his universe. He upholds it. Or Hebrews 1, he, he holds it up with the word of his power. Elihu says, that brings trembling in my heart. When he, he as it were, hears the existence of God in the creation. 
Verse 3, under the whole heaven he lets it loose and his lightning to the ends of the earth. After it a voice roars and he thunders with his majestic voice. He does not restrain the lightnings when his voice is heard. For God thunders with his voice wondrously, doing great things which we cannot comprehend. What's the first thing Elihu said? What does he say? Remember back in the beginning of this? Elihu says, you know what? Job, you're wrong because God is greater than man. Now he's illustrating it. Now he's just, he's just backing it up with proof and evidence. Verse 6, For to the snow, he says, fall on the earth, and to the downpour and the rain be strong. He, he seals the hand of every man that all men may know his work. Then the beast goes into its lair and remains in its den, and out of the south comes the storm. He says, you know, the, the beasts know when to hibernate. They just know how to do that because God upholds his creation. And out of the south comes the storm. And out of the north, uh, the cold. From the breath of God, ice is made. And the expanse of the waters is frozen. Also, with, with the moisture, he loads the thick cloud. And he disperses the cloud of his lightning. And it changes directions, turning around by his guidance that it may do whatever he commands it on the face of the inhabited earth, whether for correction or for his world or for loving kindnesses, he causes it to happen. He has a reason. We don't know what that reason is, but he always has a reason and he causes it to happen. Verse 14, listen to this, O Job, stand and consider the wonders of God. Do you know how God establishes them, Job, and makes the lightning of his cloud shine? Job, do you know about the layers of thick clouds? Do you know the wonders of one perfect in knowledge, you whose garments are hot when the land is still because of the south wind? Job, can you with him spread out the skies, strong as a molten mirror? Teach us what we shall say to him. For we cannot arrange our case because of darkness. Shall it be told to him that I would speak? Or should a man say that he would be swallowed up? And now men do not see the light, which is bright in the skies. But the wind has passed and cleared them out. Out of the north comes golden splutter. And around God is awesome majesty, if we will just open our eyes. Because he is exalted in power. He will not do violence to justice. There it is, right? God is a just God. He will not do violence to justice and abundant righteousness. Therefore, men fear him. Because he does not regard any who are wise of heart. And he rebukes him in a very kind way. Now, as Elihu is giving us this theology of weather lesson, something is happening. The skies are turning black. There's a storm coming in. And a whirlwind approaches. And out of that whirlwind, God's going to speak. And we'll learn about that next time.